One, um, this is my last night to be able to speak to you all. No. No. Um, Britton will close things out tomorrow, and then Patrick will close things out even further on Friday night. But uh, I do want to say this. When, when uh, John asked me to come and, and, and do this camp, nobody ever asked me to do that, do something like this. And, um, <clears throat> well, thank you. Not only has it been wonderful to, to be here with you all, but uh, for me, and I would say for Britain as well, it's been an honor to be with you guys this week. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for your kind-heartedness as you uh, just say hello and, um, and as you serve one another. It's been super encouraging to see. Um, we knew this coming into it. I actually have to leave Friday morning. And so I, I will hate that I won't be with you all Friday afternoon to close things out. Um, I have to meet my family in Phoenix because we have a funeral to go to. On, uh, my wife's grandfather passed away. And so if you all think about it throughout the week, and pray for our traveling and pray for that service and funeral. But after this week, some of you, um, <clears throat> our paths might cross. Some of you might find yourself at the University of Alabama. How, wo- <laughs> how wonderful that might be. Uh, others of you, I might not see you until we see Jesus. So I just wanted to say how encouraging it has been to be with you all this week. All right? All right. <clears throat> Let's get into it. John chapter 13. This section of the book of John is commonly known as the Upper Room Discourse. And it's, it's Jesus' last hours with his disciples. Okay? And what you need to know about the text we're about to read is that Jesus is going to be on a cross in 24 hours, okay? Part of what we're going to talk about tonight is the motivation for service. We've hit on it a little bit. I want to go, go into it a little further, okay? The motivation for service. What motivates you for service? And as you begin to think about this, one of the things you may or may not be aware of is that service slash volunteering slash not-for-profit organizations, is super trendy today. And I say that because it's actually cool to be serving, to be volunteering, to be uh, maybe even starting a not-for-profit organization. And that can become the motivation for serving because it's cool, it's trendy, it's acceptable, socially acceptable. Uh, In some places, if you're not serving on the weekends or doing something, uh, you're kind of out of the social, social loop. Not cool. And so this sort of brings us to myth number five on your sheet there, and that is the myth is that all service is fun and rewarding. Um, That is the myth we're going to talk about tonight. That all service is, is fun and rewarding. And so as we look at this text, I want you to consider your motivation for service, okay? And I'll go ahead and tell you up front. As we, as we read here, <clears throat> Jesus' motivation for service in these last hours before he dies is not the fun and excitement that's in front of him. It's not the books that will be written about him later on. It's not fill in the blank. His motivation for serving is you. He's thinking of you in these last hours, okay? So with that, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. It's found in John chapter 13, verses 1 to 11 tonight. 
says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, not the Simon we've been talking about, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Verse 8, Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, y'all are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. We pray and ask God to teach us his word again tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, we again give you thanks for meeting us and seeing us through another day. Uh, Beautiful weather, uh, good work, good food. The food has gotten better as the week has gone on. That is amazing. Thank you for that. Um, But Lord, uh, tonight we, we do pray as we open up your word that you would do what you promised to do, that you would give us your spirit, that we would see and hear things uh, that we can't see and hear apart from your spirit. Lord, would you uh, make our hearts good soil so as the word goes out, it would produce a fruit, and, it would, and we would leave here changed people. Pray all this in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat> I've already seen the hands go up when somebody earlier this week asked if you watched The Office, so I know that some of you all watched The Office um, I'm, a, I'm an office fan. Uh, that's pre-Michael Scott Paper Company, post-Michael Scott Paper Company, even post-Michael Scott. I still like it. Uh, um, we can talk about that later. But uh, one of my favorite episodes is from season two, and it's, it was called The Coup. And in this episode, as we know, Dwight has always wanted to take over uh, the, the office. And so um, there's Dwight and there's Angela. And... <laughs> One of the strangest relationships I've ever seen on TV. And Angela is, is, is telling Dwight that you need to go talk to Jan. And you need to go talk to her uh, and ask her for Michael's job. And she persuades him to do so. And so Dwight, in his seriousness, um, calls up Jan and says, we need to meet. And so they meet. And they're at some sort of like breakfast spot. And he's just mowing through some <laughs> pancakes and sausage and... And, and Jan's just sort of staring at the ridiculousness that is Dwight Schrute. And, and she kind of just goes, all right, so, you know, what's your plan here? Because Dwight tells her that he, he thinks that he should be in charge of, of the office. And so the first thing he says, well, I would immediately eliminate half of the positions, starting with Jim Halpert. That's his plan. That's what he would do if he was given the authority of the office. Um, of course, if you know the episode, you know that Michael finds out about this, and he sort of plays a trick on Dwight, and he gives Dwight his job. 
And there's this moment before Dwight realizes that Michael's messing with him where him, Dwight, and Angela are in the break room. And they're not, of course, looking at each other, but they're talking to each other. And they're acting like they're getting something out of the Coke machine. And Angela says something like this. She goes, we can make such a difference. Which, in which Dwight replies, you mean I can make such a difference. It's one of those great moments uh, for Dwight Schrute. <clears throat> Why do I tell you this? Why do I even care about the coup? Um, what would you do if a lot of authority was given to you? We all know what Dwight Schrute would do with a lot of authority. <laughs> he would fire half of the office. Um, what would you do if a lot of authority was given to you? Because, look, if you're going to be a servant leader, if you're going to be in positions of leadership, um, authority is going to be given to you. If you're going to be a Christian, authority is going to be given to you. Um, all of us in this room will, at some point in time, if we haven't already, experience being in positions of authority. And the question I simply ask is, what would you do if a lot of authority was given to you? As you think about that, what, what do most people in this world do with a lot of authority that's given to them? And maybe more important, what does Jesus do with the authority that's given to him? And it's that question that I want us to look as we look at three things this evening. And the first thing is this, what authority did Jesus have? The second is, how did Jesus use that authority? And the third thing is, why did Jesus use his authority in this way? What authority did Jesus have? How did Jesus use that authority? And why did Jesus use his authority in this way? All right, uh, let's go to that first one. What authority did Jesus have? And the simple answer to that question is he had all authority. The Father had given all things into his hands. That's what the text tells us. Matthew 28, 18, uh, a very familiar passage for Christians. Uh, the Great Commission tells us that all authority on heaven and on earth was given to Jesus. Psalm 2 says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession, referring to the Lord's anointed, which we know is Jesus Christ in the New Testament. What we know about Jesus as God's Son is that the Father was pleased to give all things into his hands. All authority has been given to Jesus. What does it mean to have all authority? In one sense, it means that you can do whatever you want. Hmm? You agree? Um, some of you might have heard of Pat Summit. She is a basketball coach, was a basketball coach at the University of Tennessee. Pat Summit is amazing. She's the winningest basketball coach in the NCAA, both men and women's leagues. She's got more wins than anybody else. She's got over 1,000 wins, um, most championships. I mean, just incredible, incredible coach. Maybe not the most championships, but um, second most. I think UCLA, coach? Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Okay. <clears throat> Pat Summit. I have a friend that uh, I went to college with, and, and he um, had, well, he knew Pat Summit, and he was friends with, with her. And he tells me this story. It's really, really interesting of uh, a time when he had a friend that was coming into to Knoxville, and they were going to hang out for the day. He had never been to Knoxville. He'd never seen the campus or anything like that. And he also wanted to meet Pat Summit. This was, you know, 10 years ago, and things were really cooking up. And <clears throat> I think she just won the national championship. And, and so 
there was just sort of this opportunity for his friend to meet it together and possibly swing by Pat Summit's office, and, and, and he could get to meet her, and it would be really great. That sort of make the weekend and, and, and all of being in Knoxville. And so sure enough, he shows up, and they, they go into uh, Pat Summit's office, and they go to the secretary that's there. And, and <clears throat> the secretary hands him this note with this badge, right? And the note says, hey, ha- yes, Pat, had to go to a meeting. We'll be back this afternoon. Come back by, you know, what, 3, 4 o'clock, whatever it said. It said, but feel free to go see UT. Here's my name badge, my ID badge, all right? And these guys, they looked at each other, and they thought, what in the world? And the other guy, you know, there was a relationship there that you could trust. But what, what this badge did for these people was it allowed them to go anywhere they wanted to within UT. And so they saw the campus like nobody else would see the campus. I mean, they could get into locker rooms if they wanted to. They could get into the field, basketball courts. They could get into all these areas. And, and at one point in time, of course, you know, these two people, they don't have, nobody's really going to recognize who they are. Of course, at one point in time, somebody says, you know, what are you, where, where, who are you guys? I mean, what are you doing here? Um, and they just kind of showed them, you know, Pat Summit's badge and, and all was, was well. It was enough, all right? Pat Summit obviously carries a lot of authority with the University of Tennessee. And I tell you that story just to say that having all authority means that you can do whatever you want. And for that day, those guys, because of Pat Summit, could do whatever they wanted. Jesus has this type of authority. He can do whatever he wants. He can go wherever he wants. He can be wherever he wants. There's no end to it. He can see and do all things. Now, when someone has authority today, and I really want you to be honest with yourself here. When somebody, when we speak of people who have authority today to do whatever they want, perhaps politicians, perhaps CEOs of companies, dictators, we usually think about that type of authority as corrupted, perhaps maybe abused, or even undeserved. We know that people often put themselves in positions of power over others at the expense of others. You might think of Saddam Hussein, Kim Jong-il, even Gaddafi. These dictators who put themselves in places of authority at the expense of other people, rarely is this type of authority deserved. And so if we're honest with ourselves, when we think about authority in that way, you all and, and myself, we're extremely skeptical of people in authority. To the extent that, you know, when we think about politics, when we think about even our parents, um, our pastors, uh, people in authority we're very skeptical of. We don't trust them because we think that they've either gotten that authority undeservingly or, to be honest, if you're like me, I'm a Y generation. I'm not sure where that makes you guys, but I'm, I come from that cut that's like, if, if, if I'm going to trust you, you have to prove your worth to me. What have you done for me lately kind of a response. All right, so I say that just to sort of expose some assumptions that, and, and that we have about authority and our distrust of authority to say this. As you look at Jesus in this text, he is the only person that we can honestly say that fully deserves the authority that has been given to him. There is no corruption in his bones nor has he abused his position. Jesus truly deserves all the authority the Father has given him. And because this is true, we can trust that he is good. And I imagine at some point in time, after saying that, that's met with some more cynicism and skepticism. Ryan, that's wonderful to say. 
it's great to hear you say that God, that we can trust that he is good. How do I know that? How do I know that God is really good? How do I know that I can trust Jesus? It's because of how Jesus uses his authority. And that brings us to our second point. How did Jesus use that authority? Look at verses 4 and 5. So he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taken a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe, and to wipe them with a towel that he had wrapped around him. In other words, Jesus uses his authority to serve you. That's how he uses his authority. And this is why you can trust him. He transformed himself into the most powerful from the most powerful to the most powerless. He uses his authority not to be served like so many others who have abused their authority, unfortunately, but to serve and to do so, y'all, and this is the beauty of this passage, in the most humiliating, humiliating of ways. What do I mean by that? What do you mean by humiliating? Why you look, first of all, <clears throat> what is Jesus doing in this passage? He's washing feet. Right? Some of you might be aware of what that means in this day and age, but washing feet was one of the dirtiest things that you could do because the feet were one of the most dirtiest parts of the body. Because as people walked, I mean, they didn't have like the, the shoes that we have today, right? If they had shoes at all, they had you know, some sort of open-toed sandal. Um, and they were walking through mud, uh, walking through other stuff. And rarely did they ever have a time to have their feet washed. Have you ever had your feet washed by somebody? Weird, isn't it? Your feet, it's so vulnerable. I don't want somebody dealing with my feet, like taking that rag in their fingers and going in between my toes and wiping. Just stay away from my feet. It's a vulnerable, vulnerable position putting their hands on what's dirty. It's also very uncomfortable, which is why, y'all, servants always did this job. Servants did this job. Having a servant do it ease some of the awkwardness and the tension. After all, regardless of how dirty and disgusting your feet were, you were still better than the servant who was washing your feet. But here's something that's changed as you look at the story. It's not a servant who's cleaning. It's Jesus, the person with all authority. What in the world? This is borderline inappropriate. First, what's Jesus doing? He's washing feet. Second, it gets even worse. Whose feet is he washing? He's washing uneducated Irrelevant men who don't even know how to follow him well. Many of you know that by the time Jesus is hanging on a cross, all of his disciples will have abandoned him. Even up to this point, many have left. But he's washing uneducated, irrelevant men who don't even know how to follow him well. In other words, he's serving people who materially, economically, and politically have nothing to offer Jesus. In other words, as one commentator would say, Jesus is doing something at this point extremely inappropriate. And see, this begins to make Peter, our good friend this week, very uneasy. Look at verses 6 to 8 there. It says, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, 
What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And in verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Perhaps this would have been some of our reactions if we were sitting there with Jesus, understanding the, the authority that has been given to him, understanding the stature of this person. But look, Peter and the disciples, to Peter and the disciples, Jesus was to use his authority as the, the, the Messiah, as the Christ, to usher in the faithful Jews to power over the Gentiles who had oppressed them all these years. If you remember back to Sunday night, this is what Andrew and, and John, or James and John were talking about. Like they, were, they were expecting uh, Jesus to use his, his Messiahship, his authority and his power to go in and overtake the, Ro- uh, the Romans and that they would be seated in power. This is why they want to sit at his right and his left, to have that authority. While Peter is starting to see that following Jesus might lead to suffering and death, perhaps that will come at least in some heroic ways. The least that he could hope for is that if I'm going to go down with the ship with Jesus, we will do so in some heroic final battle. We are defending the cause and we are killing Gentile people, Romans in particular. At least that message alone, Peter can begin to get his arms around. That would be heroic. That would be significant. What he's missing is what Jesus is trying to tell him in this text, is that you're going to go down serving, not in heroic ways, but in the most humiliating of ways. And that's why he's demonstrating to him what he's doing at this point. That's why Jesus lays down his authority. And he not only lays down his authority to those he loves, he lays it down to those who hate him. Peter is not yet ready to be humiliated for Jesus, and for Jesus to wash Peter's feet would have been inappropriate because of how humiliating, culturally speaking, it was to do so. This was a job for servants. Um, Most of you don't know this. There's no reason for you to know this. I was a janitor for three years in seminary and uh, loved it. Nothing gets you put into that sympathetic category like being a janitor. It's true. People walk by and just kind of, mm, you know. Mm. It's weird. Uh, one of my duties was at the, at the, I went to Covenant Theological Seminary, and one of my duties was to clean the president of the seminary's office, and his name was Dr. Brian Chappell. Dr. Chappell uh, was the face of the seminary, obviously being the president, and in many ways was the face of the, of the denomination in which Covenant Seminary is, this PCA, sort of the face of that denomination. I mean, it's Big dude, right? The guy in charge. Uh, one of the funny things about my th- entire three years uh, at Covenant in St. Louis is I never s- once saw Dr. Chapel, the president of the seminary, never once saw him in anything but a suit. No joke. It was like a Saturday, random Saturday afternoon at 3 o'clock. There's nobody at the seminary. I'm cleaning the bathrooms. And I go outside to take a break, and off in the distance... I see this person riding a bike. I thought, somebody's going on a nice little bike ride on a Saturday afternoon. As this person gets closer, it's Dr. Chappell on the bike, and he's wearing a suit. (laughs) I never once saw him without a suit. But as as I thought about this text, and as I sort of thought about what what Peter's experiencing, and as I sort of thought about the many bathrooms that I've cleaned in my life, I imagine what Peter was experiencing here would have been comparable to Dr. Chapel coming in 
with a suit as I cleaned a urinal and taking the rag from my hand and getting down on his hands and knees in that bathroom and wiping it clean. How wildly inappropriate that would be. For those of you that know him, he probably would do it, but that's beside the point. How wildly inappropriate that would be for a man of that stature, that authority. But just multiply that, y'all, times infinity. And now you have Jesus using his authority to wash his disciples' feet. This is what Jesus chooses to do, though. All right. Is this, though, then, just a story about dirty feet? Are you and I, then, to go around washing feet? No, it can't be just a story about dirty feet. And this gets me to my third point. Why did Jesus use his authority in this way? He uses his authority in this way because Jesus had to wash you if you were going to have any part in him. And that is really the thrust of this passage. He had to wash you if you were going to have any part in him. Look at verse 8. Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Sort of a funny reaction there. In other words, what Jesus is saying to Peter is that you can't serve me, and this is hard, unless I serve you. You can't serve me, Peter, unless I serve you. You can't serve, you can't go serve others. You can't be a student servant leader unless Jesus serves you first. This is the message that he's trying to get across, not just to Peter, but the rest of his disciples. In this whole thing, Jesus gives us this picture of a servant. Do not miss this. This whole text here, this this washing of feet, is a huge parable of what will happen in just 24 hours to Jesus. From the taking off of his clothes, to the bowing of his knee, and to the washing of dirty feet, Jesus is showing us what will happen to him in just 24 hours. Because in 24 hours, as I said, Jesus will be hanging on a cross. And see, not only will his clothes come off, as we read here in the text, but so will his glory. In 24 hours, not, will not only the mud between your toes and the dirt on your body be cleansed, but also will, will your sin. You see the parable? What he's trying to tell you? In 24 hours, it won't just be water that will wash the mud away, but his blood. You see, what Jesus is trying to say to Peter, says, you can't serve me unless I serve you first. But it's much much deeper than that. What Jesus is saying to Peter is that unless it's my shed blood that you run to in order to be clean, you can have no part in me. This relationship that you long to have with me cannot happen. It will not work. Because that's the gospel, if you're looking for it. It's Christianity. And you begin to see why all the servant leadership that we've been talking about this week must begin with Jesus. This is why Jesus uses his authority in this way. A quick question about this point is, many of us, all of us, should be asking rhetorically, do I need to be washed? Have I been washed? And I hope that we, all, we can all say yes. Yes. Do you think that you need to be washed 
Maybe more importantly, as we pull away from the individualistic culture that we uh, so love, the personalization of our faith, and move it to a more community-based faith, corporate is what I was looking for, are we a community? When you go back to your homes, are you all a community who embrace the reality that unless it is Jesus' shed blood that you run to in order to be clean, unless he has made it right, that you can have no part of his kingdom. And therefore your service is in vain. It's all about Jesus, y'all. We have to see Jesus washing us by his own humiliation before we can ever, ever begin to think about what it is that we are called to do. It's sort of going to first base. Don't take that illustration too far. Many of us are around in second. This is, don't take that too far. Before we're realizing this has got to start with Jesus. Okay? Don't take that too far. <clears throat> we have to see, everyone's like, what did he just say? Everyone just woke up. What? <laughs> what did he just say? We have to see Jesus watching us by his own humiliation before we ever think about what we are called to do. And I want to reiterate, this is why vocation, y'all, doesn't matter in the sense that knowing the king you serve, as Britton told us last night, that's what matters. Knowing the king that you serve is what shapes your vocation. Because after you've been washed, all you want to do is be with him. When you begin to get your arms around what he's doing in this room for his disciples, what he's doing for you, that's all you want to do. You just want to be with him. Okay, so what is Jesus asking us to do tonight? What is Jesus asking you to do if this is an example? He's not asking you to go around cleaning other people's feet. You can do that if you want to. He's not even asking you to just go and serve others, y'all. He's asking you, and I need you to hear this, to suffer humiliation for others. He's asking you to suffer humiliation for the sake of others, to love other people to the end with the same quality of love in which he has loved you. And I can't say that without recalling that question. Do you know what you're asking? Do you know what you're asking to be servant leaders? All right, what does this mean for us tonight? How will we suffer and die? How will we suffer humiliation for other people? And I have three basic points of application I want to share with you, and then we'll be done. First, what this means is this, is that no act of service will ever, ever be beneath you if you're to follow Jesus. No act of service will ever be beneath you as a follow, follower of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus' service to you qualifies him to ask anything he wants of you. A man who can do anything, who has authority to do whatever he wants, but chooses to suffer humiliation for you while you are still sinners, while you are still enemies with him, gets to ask a few favors. Does he not? No act of service will ever be beneath you. So the question becomes, what acts of service are beneath you? And the best way to get at that question, y'all, is to ask another question. Who are you avoiding? Who are you avoiding? Who are you ignoring? 
It could be at home, school. It could be the people in this room. Because I, I know what it's like out there, out here, because I have the same problems. I, I want to gravitate to the people who are like me or who are cool. I'm not saying I'm cool. <laughs> but by cool, I mean people who can do something for me. Maybe they make me laugh. Maybe they put me in a better position to be successful. Rather, I do not want to be around those who are awkward, who are difficult and even messy to be around. Who are you ignoring? I'll throw this out there just for the sake of it. Any of y'all, and I was Greek, so that's why I'm saying this. Any of y'all who are considering the pledge, not saying do it or don't do it, but that's the whole premise of the Greek system, to remove ourselves from awkwardness. Everybody looks the same. I want to get away from people who are awkward, who are not like me. Who are you avoiding? You know, like the service will be beneath you. And by service, y'all, I feel like I need to also kind of explain that. This could just mean like you sitting at a table with somebody during lunch and introducing yourself. Doesn't mean you have to go like remove the weeds or (laughs) remove the weeds in their like you know shrubs or something like that at home, some sort of weekend service project. Go sit down and talk to them. Introduce yourself. That's what service could be. No act of service is beneath you. The second thing is this. You're called to serve those closest to you. Britton touched on this last night. I want to take it a little bit further. If we go back to the story, what's amazing about what Jesus is doing here is who he is serving and who he's serving are those closest to him. Men who don't follow him well, as we've already said, But also, don't miss this, men who will desert him later. In other words, people who do not deserve his service. Look, serving those closest to us, as as we said last night, is always going to be the hardest. It's hardest because it's the closer you get to somebody, the more junk you see. This is marriage, by the way. And the more you realize that person does not deserve my kindness. That person does not deserve my service. This is why it is so difficult, all right? I often ask, how many of you dream of serving Jesus in heroic ways? And if we had time, I'd love to go around the room and hear of your dreams of serving Jesus in heroic ways. Let me try to shape that a little bit for you. Does that dream consist of serving your parents, of serving your siblings, when you know they don't deserve your service? When you go to college, it's going to be all about your roommate. It's the person you're going to want to avoid the most. Why? Simply because you're around them. You know them. They see you. You see them. They're hard. They're always there. All right? And this gets us down the road to that wonderful word called the mundane. That's a little bit of soapbox of of mine. This is my last night, so here we go. I want to encourage you all to begin thinking about what the ordinary Christian life is. All right? The ordinary Christian life is the mundane. It's embracing the mundane. And I want to get at this by asking you two questions. The first one is this. What does the world today say to you about the mundane? Whether it's in movies, TVs, magazines, whatever. What does the world say to you about the mundane? If you think of an older movie about 10 years ago called Office Space, which is amazing, hilarious movie, right? What does that movie say about the mundane? It says it's bad. 
I said, it's not worth your time. Get away from it, right? I mean, even the show, The Office, builds on the premise and makes fun of the, the day-in activities of people, normal people's lives. And behind all of this, they are saying, you deserve something better, something exciting. Do not get trapped into that day-to-day routine that is so boring and mundane. When you get older, you're going to start seeing your friends show up with new cars, going on fancy vacations. Not that anything's wrong. You need to go on vacations and get away. But the reason they do these things is because this is, this is what's going to bring new life into me. It's just going to break that cycle. I get, up at, I get up at 8. I go to work till 5. I come home. I cook. You know, this is, this is bad. I've got to change it. This is what the world says about the mundane. All right, what does the church say about the mundane? I'm going to press you to say that the church says the exact same thing. What happens when you become spiritually boring, dry, you not, not you personally, but just, you know, life in general? Oh, you've got to read this book, right? You've got to listen to this pastor. You've got to go on this retreat. World missions, that's where the action is. Go, 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 go. And see, the two... The problem with both of these reactions, and I need you all to see this, is that both of these responses are saying this about the mundane. You need to escape. You need to get out. Here's the problem. You can't love those closest to you if all you are trying to do is escape. 98, and that is probably a small number, percent of your life, y'all, is going to be lived out in the mundane. And until you're able to embrace it and know that it is kingdom work, changing diapers, mowing your grass is kingdom work, your life will never, it'll never be fulfilling, but you'll never think you're really having an impact. And you'll drive and drive and drive and drive and drive until you just burn out. And why go to church anymore? Why even believe this stuff? You can't, you can't love those closest to you if all that you're doing is escaping. Rather, learn to embrace the mundane things of life. They are the most beautiful. <clears throat> one, of the thing, one of the reasons the church doesn't really preach this to us is because we look at characters in the Bible, and I'll, and I'll pull from three. I'll think about Daniel, I think about Paul, and we'll even use Jesus. He seems to be a pretty big guy in the Bible. And we look at these guys, and we think about the, the, <clears throat> the impact they had on the kingdom. And when you think about Daniel, you think about, well, this guy really stood up to the, uh, the culture of his time. He told that king he's not eating his food. I want to do that. I want to have an impact like that. He's in the lion's den. Does it get any more heroic than that? Survive the lions, right? That's what I want to do. And we take these snapshots of people's lives, and we say, that's what I want my Christian life to look like. Daniel lived for about 70 years. Bible records probably three days of his life in those, those moments that we just so love. What is he doing for the other 69 years, 362 days a year? What, what is he doing with his life? What do you think that consists of? You think he's going in the lion's dens every day of his life? No. He's getting up. He's eating. He's serving his family. He's probably being a good Jew. He's going to the temple, right? The day-to-day things. Paul's the same way. We look at Paul, and we love, 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 love his conversion story. 
And then what does Paul do after his conversion story? He goes and he starts most of the, uh, a lot of the early, early church, the church. Writes half of the New Testament. That's pretty heroic and pretty awesome. But you don't realize that after Paul was converted, for 15 years he did nothing. He went and he studied. He listened. He went to bed. He got up. Loved people. Made tents. You're starting to get it. Jesus, we have three years of his life recorded. What did he do for the other 27? I think you get it. The majority of your life is going to be lived out in the mundane. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Because the gospel, y'all, is lived out in the day-to-day things of life. Do not miss that. And if you are trying to escape, if you're trying to fill that void with other things, you're never going to be able to serve those closest to you because you're never going to be around. There will always be that moment when the hardest person to serve is the one you know the best. Why? Because you've seen their self-righteousness. You've heard them talk bad about you at some point. You've thought that they were your friend, that you trusted them, and then they do something to sort of throw that out the window. You've seen their heart. And to some extent, why are we surprised? (laughs) That this is so difficult. But look, this is who Jesus calls you to serve. Listen, you are never called to serve others because they deserve it. You're never called to serve others because they deserve it. We are called to serve others because Christ first served us, period. Serve those closest to you. Lastly, you are not only called to serve those closest to you, but you are called to serve your enemies as well. And I don't know how to do this. In John chapter 13, if it tells us anything, it says that even if you serve your enemies, they are still going to betray you. Verse 11, Judas is there. Jesus is washing Judas's feet. He is the one who will turn Jesus over for a bag of coins. You cannot serve people only because in the end you hope it will affect some outcome. You hope it will advance your reputation, your career, or something. You have to, in the end, serve people because you are absolutely captivated and enamored with what Jesus has done for you. This was Britain's entire point last night. It's about who you serve. And see, this is why the myth that service is always fun and rewarding is not true. I'll just revisit his friend Reed. He's getting sued because he's been a faithful practicer of medicine. And he's still called to go love and serve those enemies of his who are suing him. Is service fun right now for Reed? I will answer that for him. Probably not. The source of our service has to be the humiliation of Jesus on the cross for our own sake and not the righteousness or unrighteousness of those around us. Look, I'm not going to say that your enemies deserve your service because they probably don't. But here's the thing. You didn't deserve Jesus' service either when he's laying on a cross for you. You didn't deserve his kindness. And what that means as Christians, as people who follow him, is that we no longer get to set the agenda. 
We just don't. We serve a monarchy. So the question becomes for you as we end this point, are you captivated and enamored with what Jesus is doing for you here? And that's my prayer for you all as you leave this place, that Jesus would become more beautiful and believable to you as you go through life. Part of what it means to be a Christian is that Jesus has given us authority to serve him and others. You are his messengers, whether you like it or not, and you are called to serve, whether you think you are a good server or not. The question is, how are we using that authority that he has given to us? Whom are we thinking of? And I'll end with this. One of the most beautiful points, and we mentioned this earlier, of this passage is who Jesus is thinking about just before his death. If you look back at verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. See, Jesus knew that he was about to die. And for all of us in this room, if we knew that we were about to die, if we knew that we had a, even just a week, we would create a list of things that we want to go do and see. We want to go to this place, maybe go to see this attraction, uh, go visit these people, perhaps go try this restaurant. I don't know. We would create some sort of list, I'm sure. But what we see in Jesus is that he wasn't thinking about all the places that he hadn't been yet. He wasn't thinking about all the meals he hadn't tried. He wasn't thinking about all the wonderful things that he was going to miss out on in just 24 hours. He was thinking of you in this room. He was thinking of you 2,000 years ago. This was his motivation to serve you. And only when you make that connection and allow that reality to invade your world will you ever be able to look at someone else and serve them, even in the most humiliating of ways, if necessary. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you were willing uh, to suffer humiliation on our part. We will spend the rest of our lives trying to comprehend and understand this. Um, I pray that you would give us the grace to just understand a little bit more of it than we do than we did yesterday. And I pray that as that outcome, that it would be that we would see and that we would love your Son. And see him as more beautiful and believable as we leave this place this evening. I pray this for all the men and women in this room. That they would run to Christ's blood to make them clean. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen.